Welcome, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I am joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you, buddy? I broke my cell phone about an hour ago, so a little stressed, but otherwise okay. How are you, Cass? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I am doing better than you, then. My cell phone is intact, and everything else is going fine. Today, we're joined by Rohan Gray, who is the assistant professor of law at Willamette University. He also is the research director of the Digital Fiat Currency Institute, a consultant to the UN International Telecommunications Union's focus group on digital currency, and a network manager with the Freedom Box Foundation. Welcome, Rohan. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it would be nice to chat with you about stablecoins, stablecoin regulation, the future of stablecoins, because you helped author the Stable Act. And maybe you can tell people a little bit about that who aren't familiar with what that is. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the point of the Stable Act was to address a long-standing hole in the bank licensing and regulatory framework in the United States that allows actors to issue deposits without effectively having a deposit license because of the way that we've defined deposits sort of circularly so that the only actors that issue deposits are banks. Therefore, if you don't issue, if you aren't a bank, you're not issuing a deposit, you're issuing something else. And and my view, and I think a view of a number of others, is that that, that framework has basically created a, a two-track system where banks are subject to all sorts of regulations for sort of formal deposits, while uh, money transmitters, shadow banks, uh, money market funds, etc., issue instruments that have very, very similar properties and similar promises behind them uh, than bank deposits, but uh, can avoid the regulation and oversight that comes with banks. So this was an attempt to just sort of fix that hole. And obviously it was directed in particular at this emerging industry of stable coins uh, and, and would require most of what we understand to be stable coins to, to uh, the issuers to get a, a banking license to be subject to the full range of banking laws. Uh, while simultaneously creating uh, a bit more flexibility in those regulatory regimes so that what we kind of consider to be narrow banks or actors that are not engaging in lending activity would be able to get a license without being subject to the same kind of capital leverage requirements that lending banks would be. Right. I'm just going to try to unpack that a little bit. Basically, you're saying that a lot of these stable coins are operating outside the bounds of current rules and regulations that would be applied to anything else that is similar to how they seem to be operating now. That can be wildcat banks, shadow banks, uh, money market funds, but that these stable coins are, are at least attempting to out operate outside those bounds. Is that right? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I think one thing is that a, a number of these stable coins are acting in a manner similar to money market funds without being regulated like a money market fund. But I think the bigger point and, and a sort of deeper point is that both the, the regulatory regime for money market funds and for sort of money transmitters in general is flawed. Is a, is a bad development. We are in a state now because we have made similar compromises with money transmitters and other actors in the past that has now basically opened the door to stablecoins doing that at a turbocharged level. So going back, I would say, you know, PayPal shouldn't have been allowed to escape banking regulations. And there's a, little, a track record of risks coming with that. Uh, money market funds shouldn't have been able to escape banking regulations. So in some respects, this is a kind of no more. 
you know, we've done this for a long time, no more, it's time to fix this. And in part, it's recognizing that stable coins are kind of even a- another level above in terms of risks. It's one thing to have money market funds blow up in 2008 and need to be bailed out, which they did. It's another thing to have, you know, Libra have 2 billion users and then blow up. It would be a, it would be a, a fundamentally different kind of risk. So in, in one respect, this is a unique problem to stable coins. In another respect, this is finally dealing with a problem that's sort of inherent to payments-oriented shadow banks for, for quite a long time. Could, could you expand a little bit on what you see as some of the flaws with the current money transmitting licensing regime and like how that can expose issues? Absolutely, yeah. So the first thing, and, and, and others have gone into detail on this, people like Dan Ori and Lev and the current money transmitter regulatory regime in the United States is basically a state-level phenomenon. There's almost no federal money transmitter laws outside of some reporting and sort of FinCEN-related requirements. Um, but when it comes to kind of safety and soundness, there's pretty much nothing. If you go to different states, some of them require you to maybe put a few thousand dollars up. Others are more stringent, requiring you to back your assets, you know, one for one in a licensed bank or something. But over Overall, even those licensed bank requirements don't guarantee the full safety of those what we would call e-money balances or money transmitter balances, in part because they focus so much on the asset side. The idea is, okay, you issue an IOU, that IOU promises to be redeemed in money on demand, and people go, well, okay, what is it backed by? What is it collateralized by? And the assumption there is if it's adequately collateralized, then you're fine. My view is that's not true. There are all sorts of risks beyond the asset quality backing the liability that could impose a serious uh, systemic risk on the final end consumer. So just to give an example, you have 100% backing, right? 100% reserves at the Federal Reserve. It's fully, you know, guaranteed up to billions of dollars. There's no deposit insurance cap risk, none of that kind of thing. They're fully liquid. So it's, there's no interest rate or durational risk like there might be with treasury securities or something like that. And then there's a problem with the processing where you get hacked. And suddenly, 20% of the people who hold those e-money balances are screwed. There's no guarantee for them in the way that there would be with insured deposits. There's no government stepping in and saying, look, this is a bad screw up, but we're not going to make you the final actor responsible. So even if you have full 100% reserve backing in good quality reserves and it's all audited and transparent, I would say that's still not good enough. The way that we've actually guaranteed public support for private monies that we allow to circulate is through an explicit government guarantee and insurance. It doesn't have to be deposit insurance. It could just be an explicit insurance that they're issuing instruments that the government is willing to backstop in, in crises moments. But my point is, when we focus on the assets, when we focus on the collateral, we're missing these larger institutional intermediary risks. And I would say that that's the biggest problem right now is whenever people look at these instruments, the first question they ask is what's backing it rather than what is it promising and can it guarantee that promise? One of my questions then at this point becomes uh, what I'm hearing from you is that you have a, a very an issue with a lot of new money issuers, essentially, we'll call them, right? Because mm-hmm. you're you're talking about money market funds. You're talking about these other it, outside the scope of stable coins. Yeah. So I'm wondering if why you why you focus on stable coins and why we're talking about the stable act is because they're the most obvious about precisely what we're talking about. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, SPACs on Fidelity is less opaque, maybe. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things there. One is just, as I said before, the sheer scope and scale of this new market that's growing. It's growing even more opaquely than the others. It's growing with even less supports. You know, I don't love the current money market fund regime, but we've at least 
sort of localize some of that risk. You know, we've been bailing them out for 10 years. We bailed them out in 2020. We bailed them out in 08, right? Or 09. And at this point, at least, there's very little risk if you're in one of those prime funds, you're going to go under. We have dealt with the consumer risk in a way that I don't think is great. We should do something about it, but we aren't in that moment where we haven't addressed the problem that, you know, $100 billion worth of people's funds are going to go under. That's the stage where we're at with the stablecoin debate. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as I said, what Facebook does is bigger than just what happens with one American prime MMF fund. And if Libra or or whatever else ends up operating in other jurisdictions, it will be a whole nother can of worms to fix if the United States has to do that kind of indirectly. The third thing is, and, and this is sort of a more general kind of claim, is I think, you know, the way that a lot of these technological developments work is the newest technology often sort of cannibalizes the prior ones. You know, I sort of joke to people nowadays, I think maybe in the future we'll say to our kids, you know, they'll say, what what was a bank deposit? And we'll say that's what we used to call stable coins. Because a coin to me is actually quite conceptually simple. People, people have talked about coins for thousands of years. The fact that digital currency is sort of moved back to the language of coins, I think is, is a kind of net positive for people's conceptual understanding. You can start to think about, well, what's the relationship between the, the stamp on the face and the underlying collateral value? Or, you know, who issues it is the question rather than sort of with debt, you're always asking sort of who's borrowing and lending and those kinds of things, even when debt functions as money. So I think, you know, when, when someone says a bank deposit, most people go, what? Like, what is a deposit? Is it that's something you deposit, right? You give it to them. So, so the $100 that you give to the bank is your deposit. You say, no, no, no. You deposit $100 and then they give you a deposit. And then someone goes, what the hell is going on? Like, it's, the language is actually confusing. Stable coins make sense. You issue a coin, it's got a stable value. Somehow you're going to keep that value stable. And the decisions that we're making now, the language, the, the myths, the stories, the social understanding we're building now about stable coins, I think will provide a framework to address a lot of these other questions, right? We, we're already looking at stable coins being the framework through which we're understanding Libra, whereas it could have been mobile money. If we look at WeChat and Alipay, they were mobile money. And I think now we're going to start thinking of them as stable coins building on top of China's digital currency. It'll be a synthetic digital currency or whatever else. That to me is sort of skating to where the puck is going. The, the questions we address with stable coins will reverberate backwards to all the other forms of shadow monies as they all dissolve into variants of stable coins in the way that, you know, the fax machine and, and phone calls and things have all dissolved into this general data layer of the internet. Are you bullish on stable coins then? It, it sounds like you're bullish on stable coins. I'm bullish on stable coins consuming bank deposits. But it doesn't mean I'm bullish on stablecoin business models because I think the way that they're going to survive is they're going to become functionally banks. So, you know, I I guess in that sense, you know, what uh, Caitlin Long is doing in Wyoming, you know, if I had to put my money on kind of where the way through all of this is, it's somewhere between that and what Facebook is doing with Silvergate. Now, I don't think those are good ways of doing it, but I think that's definitely likely to survive the shakeup in a way that, you know, Tether imploding or even potentially Circle not getting a, a bank license might. I wouldn't be as optimistic about them as I would be about the models that are trying to sidle up next to the banking system and, and you know, either piggyback off them or, or get a license and, and go legit, so to speak. But we're seeing, oh, one other thing, we're seeing this with JP Morgan, right? JP Morgan's issuing its own coin right now. And to me, at least, that's a really great example because... Do we want them to be able to issue that as something different from its depository operations? Or should the same regulators who are saying, okay, we can see all of what you're doing with deposits, be able to look at JP Morgan coin and say, I don't care what you call it. 
this is still a deposit. This is part of that same business and we get to regulate it accordingly. I, I think the point you're making with JP Morgan there especially is excellent because it draws attention to the fact that because it is a bank doing it, that effectively what a lot of these other companies have been doing is acting as banks, but trying to avoid the same level of scrutiny and examination that banks have to go through. And that that's been permitted under like the guise of innovation at the expense of effectively consumer protection. Yeah, and, and it's been permitted under this fiction that as long as it's sort of fully backed that everything is fine. And this goes back to kind of Western Union in the 19th century. Oh, we're not banks, right? We we just run the rails, right? And, and every one of our dollars is backstopped somewhere else. And then, of course, how many decades into Western Union doing that before they started offering credit products? Like a few? And PayPal, you know, gets a, a money transmitter license and says from the outset, we plan on doing lending. And then the money transmitter guy said, no, you can't do that. They said, oh, sorry, sorry, we aren't doing lending. They get their license, you know, scrutiny turns somewhere else, and then they start doing lending activity again. And so to me, this sort of historical trend of actors saying, hey, we want to do some of these banking services, but because we're not doing some of the others, we should be exempt from that regulatory regime and let us do this other weaker second tier regulatory regime um, is just cover for them to eventually do shadow banking activity. And uh, you mentioned earlier about the possibility of having like a narrow charter that potentially was focused more on these depository institutions that are issuing something backed by a set of deposits. Can you go into it all, like how the regulatory scrutiny in a business like that would differ from a lending bank? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so the first thing is, as I said before, I think from the perspective of the liability, they should be the same, right? If you're holding bank money in your wallet and you transfer it to a stablecoin, it shouldn't suddenly become more risky. Whether the bank in question or the financial entity in question is is holding treasury securities or mortgage loans or something else should not be the determining factor to whether your money is going to be gone one day when you wake up or not. Right? So from the perspective of the consumer, it doesn't really matter. From the perspective of the bank regulator, if you can say, hey, I'm not engaging in all kinds of derivative products, I'm not engaging in investment banking, I'm not engaging in you know, loans that are subprime, I'm only holding these top level assets, then it could be that the amount of capital you're required to hold is lower. It could be that the entry requirements could be lower and, and the, the, the approval process faster. Now, because, as I said before, I think a lot of these banks claim they're not going to do any of that. And then once they get their license, they start going into that other stuff. I would say, you know, you get that license, you're, you're subject to ongoing scrutiny. And if it turns out you're starting to engage in credit products, the regulators might require you to sort of upgrade your license and upgrade your kind of capital requirements, just like you might if you become systemically important as a, as a sort of big siffy or something. But the, the underlying point there is, you know, if you really are not engaging in lending activity, there might be a different degree of risk that would mean, you, you know, you don't have to sort of dot every I and cross every T to get a full banking license. But what you often hear, and usually from people that have an instinctual bias against more regulation, is requiring these actors to get a full banking license is an overly aggressive move, right? Let's just use the existing money transmitter regime. And my view is, if you actually look at the history of that regime, it was designed to skirt banking regulation. It's not a good thing we should start from as a presumption. It was from the outset a form of kind of regulatory arbitrage that we don't have to continue to perpetuate because when you are licensed under a money transmitter regime, even a national one, 
you are put to the side from all the conversations about macroprudential risk. You're put to the side from all those conversations about banking risk. And the, the banking regulators often don't have direct access to you and your books. They have to go through you know, the banks or whatever else. And so you have this dynamic where licensed banks that want to engage in activity, they know they can't engage in themselves, have these partnerships with money transmitters or fintechs to do the dirty work for them. And they sort of rent a charter and all these things. And so I would much rather have what people are considering now to be a national money transmitter license within a banking regulatory regime rather than outside of it as this sort of second tier, one step further removed from the rest of the process. If for no other reason than operational risk for payments companies is, it's, is a form of serious systemic risk. And the same people that have to deal with systemic risk across the rest of the financial sector should be looking at that kind of operational risk. We saw it with Wirecard. We've seen it with uh, with some mobile money companies, right? We, we, we shouldn't be assuming that the minute you have, you know, assets backing your liabilities, you're, you pose no risk to consumers. I think it would be worthwhile to try to expand on what you're implying by systemic risk in all of this. I, for instance, uh, we talk about Tether and it's like, oh, this is quite obviously a systemic risk to cryptocurrency exchanges and the price of cryptocurrencies. Um, liquidity, li- it would cause liquidity issues. Are we talking about the same thing? Are we talking about something different? How does it mirror it? How does it? How is it a totally separate systemic risk? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I am talking about something slightly different there, right? There's obviously the sort of contagion risk into other markets, which is a serious problem, which is, I think, what you're just addressing. I'm talking more about the risk of loss on those stable coins. So, you know, right now, a lot of people hold stable coins, you know, functionally as deposits with exchanges, right? They don't hold them directly. They hold them through some sort of intermediary. If that intermediary goes under, it's sort of like Mt. Gox. You wake up thinking about $100 of stable coins in your account. You got nothing because that intermediary is, is gone. But imagine, imagine we sort of go to the next stage. Imagine that, you know, Libra is in existence, Circle gets its license, you know, Gemini keeps growing, a bunch of these SPDIs in in Wyoming get their licenses, and suddenly you have stable coins being the new PayPal. Suddenly everybody's using stable coins in their wallet. Venmo is a stable coin now, or there's, you know, a new one. Every one of these these payments actors is using stable coins instead of e-money balances. And then one day there's a hack or one day, you know, there's fraud or something and millions and millions of people's accounts don't have any funds in them anymore, right? It's not that they weren't backed by assets. It's that when you tried to make the transaction, somebody intercepted that or somebody, you know, violated the the, the customer safety of, of those funds or something. And as a result, what you thought was as good as money in your bank account isn't. We've been using it as money, just like Venmo, and suddenly those people don't have access to money anymore. This is, to me, functionally like a bank run. If the regulators let that growth happen up until that point, they've been telling people, yeah, this is safe. You can use this as money. This is, a, this is an e-money transmitter, literally. And suddenly you, you don't have the safety of a bank. Now, you listen to sort of libertarians and stuff, they'll say, well, buyer beware. Well, that's the, that's the regime we had before the 1930s with banks, right? You don't like the risk of your bank, you know, hold gold well, or hold coins or something. It doesn't work like that. When you create a whole regime where these are a, a, a sort of core layer of the payment system, where to do daily business, people are relying on this and you let them, you encourage them, you develop regulatory regimes that say, this is okay. And then suddenly average people lose their life savings, lose their their ability to survive week to week. They didn't take on risk. They weren't trying to invest. They were just trying to hold funds to make payments to people. That's the kind of thing that does just doesn't fly politically. That's where you end up having bailouts. That's why money market funds get bailed out, right? And to, 
where I came into all of this actually was from the mobile money side of things, sort of eight, nine years ago, before stable coins were a thing. I was looking at this in the context of mobile money, and it's the same argument. Oh, we're not making loans. We're just doing payments. We're backed fully by, you know, dollars in a, in a bank account somewhere. And most of those money, uh, mobile money operators actually did have the funds backed up somewhere. It wasn't like Tether where they're just lying about it. They actually did have the funds. But, but even then, what did they discover? They discovered that those bank accounts are typically only insured up to a pretty low cap. $250,000 in the United States is a lot if you're an average person. It's not that much if you are Venmo. So what a number of countries had to do when mobile money started becoming big was they created special trust accounts at the central bank. They created special kinds of exemptions to other creditor claims on banks in receivership. They created special accounts that the payments processors could have at central banks. All these things designed to get over the limits that one-to-one backing at banks had. So the fact that, you know, when you hear Tether saying, wow, it's, you know, in, in an ideal world, or if you believe us, we're fully backed one-to-one with bank deposits. And I go, yeah, okay, great. You're at the start of a conversation that mobile money operators had 15 years ago, and they knew that was insufficient. Even if everything you said is true, at best, you're starting with the shadow banking problems that mobile money operators have been trying to resolve for the last 15 years. What do you have to say about that? So, so that, that to me is the bigger problem. We, we haven't worked out a way to actually guarantee the moneyness of money other than to explicitly guarantee it. That was a remarkably convincing argument. Just as a bit of a tangent off of that and a side related to that, I remember when I was looking at USDC in Circle and like the center approved investment policy is basically the claim they made is that the only assets they invest in are assets that are legal under the like state money transmitter licenses where they operate. And so I was curious and I started looking up some of those. And there's also just such a wide variation state to state under like what will be considered sufficient backing for a dollar of e-money. And so with our current regime, without any kind of nationwide money transmitter regulation on that, even ones who are compliant on a state to state basis are going to have wildly different amounts of backing. Oh, absolutely. And of course, they're never interested in actually clarifying that, right? They make it sound like every one of those state money transmitter laws requires dollar for dollar in, in you know, safe investments. And some of them are like, pay $3,000 and we'll never ask you about anything ever again. Like, that's the extent of the regulatory regime in Tennessee or some like that. So this idea that, yeah, this idea that like we're compliant with this 50 state regulatory strategy, it, you know, it, it's like saying, yeah, we're compliant with like the NRA's gun regulations. Like, yeah, they've been watered down for a hundred years specifically for this purpose. There's a reason why everybody wants to keep stuff over in money transmitter land is because the regulations suck. This is a good bridge into what I think something that happened today. Jerome Powell came out and said, you wouldn't need stable coins. You wouldn't need cryptocurrencies if you had a digital U.S. currency. I don't know about you wouldn't need cryptocurrencies, but I certainly see him and understand the you wouldn't need stable coins part. And in my opinion, and this is this is where I'd like to hear your thoughts, Rohan, because I think you probably have a better understanding of regulation and the future of stable coins than I do. But in my mind, once you introduce a U.S. central bank digital currency, uh, CBDC, stable coins become largely irrelevant besides maybe for some loans and some other niche kind of things. Otherwise, what use, what, what good are they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 Congresswoman Presley said a very similar thing like two years ago in July 2019 in a hearing with um, 
David Marcus from, from Libra. She said, you know, the only reason we're even here today is because we've failed to offer a safe public alternative, which, you know, is a time-honoured strategy of private enterprises to starve public infrastructure and then say, oh, well, someone needs to step in and provide this thing that isn't being provided. You know, I mean, that's, that's Blackwater's justification for existing as well. But when you're talking about stable coins, yeah, I mean, what are stable coins trying to do? They're trying to say, we'll give you all the benefits of public money with more functionality that public money doesn't provide, right? Nobody who's holding stable coins, you know, other than the people that are holding it precisely because it's offering 5% yield with no risk, which is an absurd proposition or whatever. But apart from those people, the people that actually want to use it for, for payments, for transferring in and out of liquidity, those kinds of things, what they're looking to hold is something that walks and talks like a bank deposit they can use in spaces that bank deposits don't work, right? And the reason that bank deposits work the way they do is because we've made them functionally as good as money. I mean, a good example of this is who is clamoring right now for Bank of America to issue its own banknote? Nobody. Everybody's pretty happy with those greenbacks, right? Every movie where there's, where there's dead presidents on the paper, everyone's very happy to get those. Nobody is clamoring for something that looks exactly like that, but is, you know, got, got a different bank in the top corner. There's a few places around the world that libertarians love to talk about that still have privately issued banknotes like Scotland. But the only reason they function that way is because nobody notices the bloody difference. How many people in Scotland stop and go, wow, I'm so glad this banknote comes from the Bank of Scotland rather than the Bank of England. They don't care as long as it's one-to-one. Scotland has like a specific kind of that's pegged. Yes, yeah, it's fully backed with, with, with one for one with reserves of the Bank of England anyway. It's been basically internalized into that system, right? So, yeah, you allow for sort of instantaneous cross border wallet held digital dollars, and the use case for stable coins disappears outside of speculation. That's a striking example for me because it reminds me of the wildcat banks like towards the end of the 19th century is once there started being these state-run banks that would enter into those areas, they would generally just out-compete the wildcat banks because people felt a lot more safe and secure using them. So in a case where the U.S. government does come out with a government-insured central bank digital currency, is there as much need for greater regulation of these money transmitters and these stable coins, or will they effectively just get outcompeted by the superior choice? Yeah, there's a bit of both. I, I think on one hand, you're still going to have the same problem you had that gave rise to, to money market funds in the first place, which, you know, one, one part of that story was that there were caps on deposit um, interest payments. And so people that wanted to hold uh, money in a cash-like account, but also wanted very, very high interest payments that were prohibited under Regulation Q in the 70s and 80s sort of switched over to money market funds. So if someone offers you something that you think is as safe as cash, but earns 5% more interest, there's going to be an incentive to go there, right? That's the first thing. And so the only way that you can really address that is to make really clear that it isn't as safe as cash, to really make that difference. Because as long as, as for example, not just you and I, but say you're a pension fund manager and you have a fiduciary responsibility to keep a certain amount of your assets in safe assets, if that regulatory regime allows you to treat that instrument as a safe asset under that classification, why the hell wouldn't you put your money in there? It's not my problem if it goes under. I did my job. I'll be gone. You'll be gone. I get my 3% in the meantime on a $2 trillion pot. And worst comes to worst, someone's going to bail that shit out because they let me buy it in the first place, right? I didn't commit fraud. They they committed a lax regulatory regime. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is we're still also talking about circumstances where people might want to have use cases that are just not allowed, right? <laughs> there are reasons why we don't let these bank deposits operate in 
certain circles. Some of it is is sclerotic and some of it is path dependent closing of the ranks by insiders. Part of it is because some of this shit is just the wild west. It's, you know, functionally equivalent to buying, you know, kidneys on a black market if it's not actually buying kidneys on a black market. In that context, you have a Gresham's dynamic, right? Where bad money can drive out good money. If you can get the same money for cheaper and it does more things and for all intents and purposes for you, it's safe until it isn't, then... That's going to be an incentive there as well. One other thing I'd say about that is, you know, people like George Selgan over at Cato will say, well, actually, the Wildcat era's risks are overstated. You know, a lot of them were relatively stable. Only a small number of them failed and things. And I I think there's contentious historical claims there. But even if you accept all of that stuff, there are well-documented stories of the politicization of money being a site of power struggles. So there are examples, African-Americans walk in with a certain kind of banknote into a store. Someone takes that good banknote, gives them change in a shitty banknote and says, you know, what are you going to do about it? And so the fact that we move from a situation where you had to haggle over prices and then haggle over the price of the payments media is to me actually a net increase in, in kind of the uniformity of our monetary system. My money is as good as your money is not Uh, the only way to emancipate people. It's not a sufficient on its own, but it makes a difference, right? We're talking about this right now across the tech platform world. We're talking about Amazon being able to do price discrimination based on your profile on amazon.com. They think you're, you know, more better credit risk or whatever else they could change the prices for this good just for you. That's a future that we're going to come to where programmable money is also going to mean money where prices are tailored to who you are. And the more that we have variations in currency, the, the, the less dumb our money is, um, the less uniform it is, the more opportunities there's going to be for discrimination. But do you worry about a big brother aspect? Like what you described to me now is very big brother. And I assume that libertarians won't want to hear about price changes being catered to you based on your income or, or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, they'll frame that as, as consumer choice. Somebody is offering you a better price in exchange for being more tailored to you. Why don't you want that? To me, at least, you know, this is the opposite of Big Brother, right? If you can go and pay basically wearing a balaclava with the identical dollar that somebody else has, it's much harder to discriminate based on who you are. What they want to be able to discriminate against who you are is to know exactly who you are, what your credit history is, and to be able to trace your dollar vis-a-vis everybody else's dollar. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a huge risk, and that's why I'm a big proponent of privacy respecting government digital cash but you know you don't have to kind of you don't have to be super complex about this it's a pretty simple four box diagram of like public money private money safe uh, privacy respecting non-privacy respecting right the kind of like surveillance coin that we're hearing a lot from central bankers is public and non-privacy respecting at its best crypto like maybe zcash or monero is trying to be privacy respecting but private and there's this other box in the corner which is publicly issued privacy respecting that nobody wants to fight for. And that to me is where the is is the winning combination. You get all the monetary properties of a public system and all the privacy respecting features of cash. It's it's also striking to me hearing you describe the example of the different banknotes and how like potentially that could be a tool for discrimination because you'll actually often kind of hear that echoed in certain uh, Bitcoiners argument for why Bitcoin is money. And they cite the fact that Bitcoin is especially fungible. And because of that, it helps it become money. And so these other e-monies seem to be sacrificing on their 
fungibility in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine if we had a hundred different banknotes right now or bank deposits. Imagine if every time you transferred bank money, you had to ask which bank it came from. It'd be a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> but that's that's functionally what's going to happen with Venmo and and all these other e-monies is, you know, which one am I getting? And I have to be, I have to keep track of it. Wait, is, is Venmo currently in receivership? Like, is Wirecard's the one being investigated, right? Okay, I don't want that one. Okay, Tether's the really fraudulent one. And then Gemini's sort of slightly better. And then Circle was better, but it's not better this week, right? Like, suddenly you're back to that 19th century where you're getting a circular that has the list of like a thousand banks and you have to keep track of, you know, who's in good graces and who isn't. Yeah, because we're already seeing the like difference in values of these dollars start to manifest. Like if you look in DeFi, I'm thinking of like MakerDAO, who issues DAI, they've got different sets of risk parameters for USDT and USDC, both of whom are registered with FinCEN and claim to be regulated money transmitters, but their the value of their notes are effectively different because of the difference in presumed assets backing them. And so we're already seeing that effect where by excluding these groups from the banking regulations, effectively their dollars are already less than dollars. Yeah, they're heterogene- heterogeneous and, you know, everybody's stable, but some are more stable than others, right? That's the that's the line. And, you know, you can start to see this in really subtle things. Like say you go to, you know, one of these big exchanges and then it says, you know, would you like to keep your funds in, in stable coins, you know, in between, you know, trading or whatever. And they put uh, they put USDT above USDC on the list, right? So it's just the first one rather than the second one. That kind of thing can have actually a really big effect on low information users, right? Oh, it's oh they, they recommended this. This was the first one off the rank. Fine, I'll, I'll go with it. Suddenly, little questions like where you lay out these options on a, on a page could make the difference between 15, 20% of your customer base choosing one or the other. Well, do you think USDT and uh, you think Tether and Circle might care about which one appears first on the list? I mean, we know this is true because this is a whole thriving industry when it comes to Google searches. It wouldn't be very hard for someone to search, hey, I want a, I want a good stable coin. You know, who, what comes up first? And suddenly you've got, it's not just all of us sort of critics of, of stable coins promoting FUD. It's Gemini promoting FUD against Tether so that when the choice comes of you choosing one versus the other, you might be inclined to choose the other one. And suddenly it's this cottage industry of, you know, trust me more than the guy next to you on the street. I only have one other uh, question for you. And I don't normally desire a prediction from any of the guests that we have on, but I am interested in what you see coming down the regulatory pipeline, what your short-term view is and long-term view is uh, considering you're so close to the heartbeat of like the regulatory and legal aspects of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing is that the, this clampdown that's happening now is not going to stop. You know, I think finally sort of the empire is starting to strike back and the kind of attacks on Binance and, and things, you know, I think the, the central bankers and stuff got very scared by Libra and that was their initial focus and they've expanded outwards now to look at the rest of the stablecoin industry. But, you know, the fact that even people like Powell and, and Lagarde and stuff, even at their very, very high level remarks, not just the ones oriented towards insiders, but they're sort of big, big talks that get covered by regular mainstream financial press and stuff they're saying things like i'm less worried about bitcoin than i am about stable coins you know they like me they they went oh crap it really makes a difference whether you're trying to issue something that's designed to walk and talk like public money and therefore can sort of go right to the heart of our monetary system or something that's by definition going to keep itself at the fringes because of how it's designed and so i think i think they're coming for this industry and you know one of the reasons why we designed the stay black the way that we did was to try and set a marker because the natural 
historical tendency of a lot of these central bankers is to is to want to let private financial institutions be in charge. One of the reasons we have the money market fund industry and the fintechs and the money transmitters is precisely because these guys were so friendly with industry for a century. You know, everyone loves to talk about how bad regulators are, but then you actually look at the regulators and the regulators have the ideology that they have rather than saying, hey, we could have just done it right the first time. No, we, we did this weak shit approach where we didn't regulate them properly and then it comes back to bite us so right now i think that what you're likely to see is some sort of harmonized money transmitter licensing regime you're probably going to see stable coins get pushed into those regimes and i think it's not going to address all the problems and it's not going to be as good as if we did this other thing just like we saw with bernie pushing a six trillion dollar budget then you sort of land at 3.5 trillion if you don't actually articulate the good thing you're not even going to get a half loaf and i think the half loaf is going to be this sort of money transmitter regime and you know of course one thing under underlying all of this is the one time the regulators are always very on top of their game is when it comes to surveillance and and the security state right FATF even as the monetary regulators are dragging their feet FATF is making sure that everybody kind of has to comply with them so whatever happens with the money transmitter regime it's going to it's going to be handing everything over to the NSA so all the privacy arguments are dead in the water in my opinion but yeah what we're going to see is we're going to see a kind of weak intermediary maybe even a new category come out of this of some sort of variation on money transmitters. And it's it's going to be the same shit that we've been dealing with for the last century and we're going to deal with it 20 years from now. We're going to say we, we didn't create a proper regime and now we have to deal with it again. That That to me is sort of where I see the end result going. There's a reason why a lot of those people saw the Stable Act and said, well, that goes too far. I think this is the reasonable compromise. It's not because it was a better design. It's because that's where they saw the kind of sophomore genius says, well, I think the correct answer is halfway between the two poles of the two other answers. You know, that 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 is their version of, of what sort of a smart person sounds like is to just take a good idea and cut it in half in the name of pragmatism. To me, that sounds kind of like the death of cash and privacy. Do you, do you think that is fair? Yeah, I do. And I, I, I've said this to so many of these crypto people. I was just on the Monero podcast the other day saying this, which is I, I respect a lot of these sort of people who don't like a totalitarian state being able to see everything you do all the time. I think that's actually quite a noble goal in and of itself. The problem is most of these people are so obsessed with number go up and with this sort of libertarian vision of selfishness driving society that they think the way to actually fight that fight is to like step one, make sure I get rich. Step two, like some justice will trickle down from that process. And I think it just doesn't work that way because eventually someone just pays you money to shut up and you take it because that's why you got into this thing in the first place. But the other part of it is that public money functions differently to these private monies, right? We don't get the privacy unless we get it in our public monetary system. And because so many of them have this anti-public bias, they're not actually focused on the real fight. They're focused over there building toy cryptocurrencies while the central bankers are all negotiating to throw away privacy in our public money. You want to actually get involved in this? Go create an open source digital cash uh, technology that can be used by governments and go advocate for it to be introduced in any CBDC framework so that we don't become a totalitarian state. I would know if you were doing that because I'm usually the only one in those rooms saying that It'd be, it'd be an absolute pleasure to have, you know, the Zcash and Monero team there, but it's it's 2% of the, the mind share of the space in general. I, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Rohan, if you've got any closing remarks you'd like to make, or if you'd like to let people know where to find you, please go ahead. 
I mean, you can just find me on Twitter and, and things at Rowan Gray. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to, to be on. Nice to see you all and, you know, keep up the good work. I appreciate you guys beating this drum. It's a thankless task to uh, to point out all of these lies and things. And I know there'd be a lot more money in just doing the other thing. So it's, it's, it's always nice to see, you know, people fighting the good fight. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think people are probably, I think you're just known as the guy who hates stable coins and crypto. And I clearly that's not fair. I, uh, similar to you, it would be really nice to see a, a public based cash system that cares about privacy, like cash, like the cash system yeah. that we currently have. Yeah, all the libertarians love to say, oh, it could never happen. It's impossible. And you're like, well, we know, you know, we have it, right? Like it exists. We, we did somehow manage to create it. And, and you know, this sort of fatalism is, is just an excuse not to try, in my opinion. So. That's going to do it for our discussion with Rohan Gray. Hopefully you enjoyed the two episodes this week and we'll enjoy the two episodes next week, which are going to feature Preston J. Byrne and Francis Coppola. I'm looking forward to both of those and I can't wait to share them with you guys. Thanks for listening. Uh